Amen. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 5, so I want to go ahead and invite you to turn over there. Um, and if, I want to mention to you that if you don't have a Bible, um, we have Bibles provided for you at the middle of each aisle. Um, and we would love for you to keep that copy of the Bible if you don't own one. We would love for that to be our gift to you and to talk to you uh, afterwards about anything that you read there. Please take us up on that. You'd make us so happy if these Bibles just disappear today. Uh, we'd love for you to have it. We're going to be in John chapter 5 because that's, where, that's the, the book, the story, collection of stories about Jesus and his teaching that our church is focusing on for the whole year. We're parking here partly so we can take our time and really get a good, clear sense of all it was that Jesus did and said. And what we see this morning in this passage we've come to is a, is a turn in the story, a turn towards the cross. And this is the first time that we see intense opposition to Jesus start to heat up. So from chapter 5, where we come this morning, all the way through roughly the middle of the book, is story after story of Jesus doing things that are catching attention of the wrong people, of the people who are stirred up against him because of the things that he's doing. The interesting thing, though, is that at first, at least in this chapter, what's got them all stirred up, what, what we're told they, the reason they, that we're told they start persecuting Jesus is not because he's got this huge following and they want to squelch it. That, that happens later. You know, they get afraid later on that Jesus is too popular and that if we allow this to continue developing, then he's going to take over this country. I mean, he will take over uh, our, our place of power among, the, among our people. That was the fear that led them to, to kill Jesus. But initially, in this passage, Jesus has barely any followers. And Jesus does something that barely anybody sees. The reason that they want to kill Jesus after our passage today has everything to do with the symbolic power of what Jesus does. That the things that he does here, they have a weight to them that those who are invested in leadership in Israel recognized immediately. One of the things we've been tracing in John is what John refers to as Jesus' signs. That in John, miracles aren't just miracles. They aren't just powerful displays of this supernatural, otherworldly source, power source that has come in and broken into our world. They are that, but they're more. They're symbolic. They're what one, one scholar has called uh, parables that explain something about the nature of Jesus' work. They help us understand who he is and what he came to do. And that's true for the, for the sign that we're going to unpack today. But now the signs, now the signs are in contested territory. The symbolic Nature of what Jesus does in our story today is not lost on those who had a lot to protect. And it's the symbolic nature of it that gets him killed. And another thing we've been tracing in John that's going to come up in our passage today is different ways to respond to Jesus. When he shows up in power, when he does these things that, that have all of this symbolism from the Old Testament tied up in them, well, there's a, there, there are different ways to respond to him. And John loves to highlight those. He loves to put them out there in front of us so that we see what we shouldn't do and see more clearly what we should do. He wants us aiming our lives at good responses and running away from poor responses. And what we get today is not just a sign of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do, but two negative responses to Jesus, two warnings. Don't do that. So what we want to do to, to unpack it all is, is first walk through the sign, what it is, what it, what, what, what's meant behind the thing Jesus actually does, and then... And then take a look at the two ways to respond, two ways that you don't want to respond that help us see more clearly what true faith in Jesus would look like. I hope that's clear. That's where we're headed this morning, one way or the other, for good or ill. Here we go. 
I want to start by, uh, by reading this passage for us. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me and honor God's word as I read uh, from John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses um, 1 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who, who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I'm going to start with the sign. I'm calling it a sign of hope. Verses 1 to 9. I, I, I think maybe the best way to proceed is to just walk through the details of the story. Get them out there. Let's get the stuff on the table. Make sure it's clear what's happening. And then we'll come back over it and try to pull out the layers of meaning that this sign is supposed to point us towards based in the Old Testament. I want to start with the story. Let's walk through it first. So the setting is Jerusalem. Jesus is back there. Maybe if you've been with us through this study, maybe you've noticed he keeps jumping back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem. Uh, Now he's back in Jerusalem. And some sort of feast, we're not told what it is, but he's come there to celebrate that feast. And somehow he finds himself in God's providence next to this pool that's known as Bethesda, surrounded by five roofed colonnades. You can imagine what this would look like, kind of a terrace, columns, roof over it to provide some shade, and then some, I guess in the middle of it, a pool of water. And what we're told is that there was, there was a belief at the time among the people that this water had healing power. We're not told whether it actually had healing power. We're told that they thought it had healing power, and they weren't the only ones. Chances are they inherited it with that association, What we know for a fact is that after Jerusalem is destroyed and it's not a a holy site for the Jews anymore, the Romans believed it had healing power. They used it as a shrine to worship their God of healing. We uh, we know it existed. We know where it was. You can go see it to this day. There's a, a church built on the site. And excavations have turned up these exact colonnades that surrounded the pool. We don't really know exactly how it worked, but maybe your Bibles include verse 4. If they don't, maybe you notice that verse 4 is left out. You jump from verses 1 to 3 all the way to verse 5. 
The reason for that, not to get into too much detail here, but the reason for that is that most of the oldest copies we have in the New Testament don't include verse 4. What it looks like is that someone later, wanting to add some information to make the story make a little more sense, added a description of why the people thought that the, the pool had healing power. And so they stick verse 4 in there. It says something like, well, here's, the, here's how it worked. When an angel of the Lord came down and stirred up the water, first man in gets healed. There's, no, there, there's basically no one that I've read who are, um, who are evangelical scholars writing today, who, people who believe in the authority of the Bible and, its, and in its truthfulness who believe that that verse belongs there. It was something added much later to, to help make sense of the story. And it kind of makes some sense out of what the man says later on. When he explains to Jesus why he hasn't been healed yet after all these years of trying, his theory is, well, I just haven't, had, I haven't been able to get in there first. No one's been here to carry me over and drop me in. So I haven't, I haven't been able to take, to, to take advantage of this magical place. I think probably it didn't have healing power, that it, that it was more a relic of paganism than of Jewish theology. That's what, that's what most folks that I read uh, suggested, that in fact the Jewish leaders probably weren't too happy that the place existed but kind of turned a blind eye to it, that, um, that, that this was a sort of relic of how most people during that time thought of the world. They believed that the natural powers of the world were invested with spiritual beings that could be for you or against you. And the idea was to use the rules to your advantage. You know? So they had sun gods and sea gods and rain gods and they would try to get them on their side and um, the, the idea that there was a healing pool was very much in line with that way of thinking about the world. It looks like it sort of crept into Jewish practice here. Whatever the, whatever the reasons behind this, the key is that Jesus walks up on a huge group of people who were badly, uh, who were badly disadvantaged in the ancient world. What he walks up on are folks who are struggling to get by as invalids, as paralyzed, lame, and blind. Now, those conditions today come with incredible challenges that are hard for those of us who don't face those conditions to even imagine. But in those days, these conditions were devastating. They were devastating. In those days, any of these conditions meant absolute helplessness. It meant no ability to work, to provide for yourself or for any family. Therefore, it probably meant no family. It meant depending on handouts and a lifetime of begging. That's what these people faced who had come desperate to this pool hoping that they could get something from it. Jesus approaches the pool and from the crowd for reasons that aren't told to us, for reasons known only to him, he marks a man. He sets his eyes on him and he goes to him. Jesus, we've seen over and over in John, sees straight into people's hearts. He sees what no one else does. And he knows this man without even speaking to him. He knows that he has faced his condition for 38 years. We're told that by the narrator. Jesus just gets it. Can you imagine that? 38 years? Many of you are in your 20s, right? So think about living with a debilitating condition on the fringes of society for twice as long as you've been alive now. Imagine the stress associated with even the most basic things like where this guy was going to sleep and what he would eat and where he would find help. We can only barely try to imagine it. Jesus knew it. Jesus sees to the heart and he understands. Jesus cares and Jesus would show compassion. Jesus asked the man 
do you want to be healed? Isn't that a strange question? Do you want to be healed? I think probably it's more like a question something in, in its context, something more like, what can I do for you? But even then, it's, it's a strange question to ask of a man who's been lame for 38 years. I think there's another meaning to it that we're going to unpack later. For now, it sets the man up to, to explain to Jesus why he thinks he's still the way he is. His theory is, he doesn't know who he's talking to. His theory is, I just had anybody to, to carry me over there at the right time. I hadn't been able to get there in time to get down before everyone else. Somebody else always scoots in ahead of me, and then, then they're the ones who get healed and not me. So probably what he's looking for from Jesus is a strong back and an arm up, someone to carry him over to the water in time. What he doesn't realize is that Jesus doesn't need any sort of magical formula. There's no hocus-pocus here. He doesn't need to turn the power of this natural world to his advantage by pressing the right buttons. No, this is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. He is the one who creates with a word. And so he speaks to this man. Get up. And at once the man is healed. Jesus speaks and the physical forces of the world obey. The pagan religion this man was dabbling in believed that the world was as it is and it's up to you to try to figure out how to manipulate it. The sovereign Lord he's just encountered is the one who commands physical forces and they obey. At once he's healed. And Jesus commanded him to take up his bed and walk. It's just meant to emphasize the completeness of it. 38 years of disability were no match for the one who's, at whose words the universe exploded into being. He speaks and the man picks up his mat and he goes home. Now, remember, this is a sign. It is not just a miracle. It's not primarily an eye-catching display of Jesus' power. Again, he heals just one out of many people. If he really just wanted to put on a show, then he would have spoken and all of them would have been healed. He didn't do that. And there's no reported fanfare. It seems like nobody even noticed. Why tell this story if nothing really came of it? The point is that it It's a picture of what Jesus came to do. And that's what we've got to understand. What is it showing us about his coming? What's the sign here? Now, there are two features of this story that I want to highlight for you. One of them I'm I'm really going to develop. One I'm going to point you to because we're going to get there later on in the story that John tells us. There are two features in this story that are weighted down with Old Testament background that explain the parable that's in this miracle. Now, the first one is the day that it occurs. Notice that John really wants to make sure you know this healing happened on the Sabbath, and that's what gets the Jewish leaders up in arms against him. It happened on the Sabbath. There's a lot of symbolic weight to the Sabbath. It is one of the, one of the defining marks of Jewish religion was that this was their day, a time to observe the fact that God had delivered them, that he was for them in a unique way, that he promised them rest and the provision of everything that they need. The Sabbath it had a whole bunch of different meanings to it, a whole, a whole, many, a whole group of layers that we'll have to unpack later on. But the, the overall picture is one of wholeness. It represents a rest that's possible for those who trust in God to give them everything that they need, a wholeness in which there's, there's nothing left undone. So it happens on the Sabbath. That's part of what we're meant to see. Jesus as the key to the full and complete enjoyment of Sabbath 
for the entire world of a rest and a wholeness that the, that, that, that the conditions these people have would not threaten anymore. We're going to get, get into that a lot more later because the Sabbath is, is one of John's main themes from here out. Here's the thing I want to focus on today. Here's the second feature. This is, this, you've got you to get this to understand the significance of this sign. The affliction that the man possessed. The fact that this man was, was lame and that he, he was laying among those at the pool who were mentioned for us, who were lined out for us, those who were blind and lame and paralyzed. These specific conditions carried a whole bunch of weight in the Old Testament, tied up with the promises that God would send a Messiah who would make all things new. The Old Testament was a very realistic book. It holds nothing back on the harshness of the world. It, it describes that in all of its detail. But what it insists, what the Old Testament insists, is that the pain and the cruelty and the sorrow and the decay and ultimately death are not natural. They aren't just the way of the world. They aren't just you know, the way things are. But they are imposters. They are blemishes on a good creation that God made perfect in all of its details. They are things gone horribly wrong. They are the result of brokenness and human rebellion. In fact, one of the images that the Apostle Paul will later pick up is, is of the whole creation as groaning under the weight of its bondage to decay, waiting for someone to set it free. And when the Old Testament describes this condition of the world, it often uses these representative conditions, conditions like that of being lame or blind, as, as sort of a symbol of the human condition, of the way the world is in its brokenness. And what the Old Testament consistently points to is that God sees the brokenness of the world. He is moved by that brokenness to compassion, and He has promised that He will make all things new. In a sense, all of us, every single one of us, is subject to decay. All of us are in bodies that grow old and die, that are not what they were made to be. Whether you have one of the specific conditions described here or not, we're all trapped in bodies that are failing us. And these conditions that sort of put in vivid HD what's wrong with all of us are the precise ones that God has promised to heal when he comes to make all things new. Now, you, could, you could see evidence for this all over. Um, it, one thing that, uh, that might be interesting for you to do, you know, if you want to check my facts here, is go when you get home and Google, uh, or go to, go to a, like an online Bible app and just type in the word lame and do a search and see how often it's referenced in the prophets. The prophets are the, are the ones in the Old Testament that were, resp- that were mostly responsible for picturing this new world God had promised to make. See how often it comes up. I just want to point you to one example because it's so closely tied to, to our story here. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 35. If you have your Bible, Isaiah 35, it's in the Old Testament. I just want to read a couple of verses here. Think about our story. Think about who it is that's laying here by the pool waiting to be healed. Think about the fact that Jesus heals this man. And, and now hear the promises from Isaiah 35. I'm going, to, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Isaiah speaks. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Okay, so here so far, what we have is a promise of 
healing and wholeness, that God will come and save. But you can imagine, those who are hearing this for the first time want to know how they'll know that it's time. What is the sign that you give? How will we know when the Messiah is here, when God has come to save? How will we know when God is going to make good on these promises? Now read verse 5. You want to know how you'll know? Then, at that time, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. How will you know when God's time has come? When he's making good on the promise to come and save and to make all things new? You'll know when the lame leap like a deer. That's the significance of this sign. Jesus spells it out for us in another one of the stories. And John just sort of leaves it to our imagination to fill in these gaps. He trusted that the people who read his book had read the Old Testament and they would have known. But there's another story in Matthew chapter 11 where John the Baptist has been thrown into prison and he's about to die. And he experiences this moment of doubt. Has my life been worth it? You know, I've just given everything to preparing for this man. How can I know that he's the one I've been waiting for? And so he sends his messengers to Jesus and he asks him, are you the one? Come on, tell me. My life is about to end here. Is it worth it? Are you the one? And Jesus, Jesus sends back one simple message. Tell him the blind have their eyes open, that the lame leap for joy. Basically quotes Isaiah 35. I am the one and this is how you know. I think... Uh, one of the things I thought of when I was reading this, preparing this week, trying to imagine how to put this into our perspective, what the significance of Jesus making this one man among many to walk again, had a, had a picture and taste the significance of it. The image that I had in my head is, is that uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia, from the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book in a series of books written for children by C.S. Lewis. Many of you have probably come across this. We've just now started getting back into them. Our son is old enough to hold steady at least for a few minutes. We get, we get through a few pages at a time. And I'd forgotten the beauty in those images. The beauty of the breaking of winter, right? So the setting for that first novel, if you haven't read it, is Narnia in, the, in bondage to a winter that is absolute and unending. Under the rule of a tyrant woman called the White Witch who sort of stands in for all that's broken about the world, for our sin, for our rebellion, for the, the decay and, and death that all of us face. One of the symbolic, uh, the symbolic power of her reign is captured by Lewis in, the repeat, in, in, in what he repeats over and over, that in Narnia, under her reign, it is always winter and it is never Christmas. But, Early on in that book, when the children arrive, when they begin to talk to those who are faithful to the true king, Aslan, word starts to come to them that Aslan is on the move. And they start to see his signs. Father Christmas shows up, and they know, oh, winter is moving now. Eventually, the snow starts to melt. Plants start to break through. And what you know is that yet what we see all around us it's still winter, and she's still got her army, and she's still got a wand that can turn people into stone. She has power, but Aslan is on the move. 
and winter is breaking. And soon, all things will be made new. I think that's what we're meant to get from this story. Jesus hasn't broken all of winter's power yet. But spring is coming. The Messiah is here. The lame leap for joy like the deer. And he will make all things new. The promise to each of you is still here. It isn't a promise that your afflictions will go away. It is a promise that God will make all things new. And that that's a promise that's as big as the universe, as powerful as death itself. He will crush even the power of death. But the prophets give us even more beautiful images about how personal his commitment is to redeeming your pain, whatever it is, even pain that you can't communicate by words to anybody, even your closest friends, even what you can't make understood by anyone else. The prophets promise to us that he will come and wipe away every tear, each one. Winter has broken, and Jesus will make all things new. That's the sign of hope. But much of this story is given to warning. Much of the story is given to warning. Because even though the promise is that the, the new world God has, is, is going to make is universal, it's going to stretch from shore to shore, the whole thing is going to be remade. The promise does not extend universally to every person. There are some who will miss out. That's what this story is meant to point us to. It's meant to warn us against being among those who miss out on the kingdom God has come to build through his son. What we want to ask, what we want to ask of these stories is, what, what do we need to look out for in ourselves to avoid missing out on what it is that God has come to build? How, what would it look like to miss out? I think we're given two different ways to miss out on what Jesus has come to do. In the, in the response of the Pharisees on one hand, and in the response of the man who was healed, on the other hand, we get two different models, if you will, for missing out on the promises God has made to redeem the world. So I want to unpack each of them in turn. I'm, I'm going to spend most of the time on the man who was healed, but I at least want to point you to the way John treats the, the Jewish leaders who were upset about what Jesus was doing. It isn't, he doesn't call them Pharisees here. In other Gospels, for the same issues, they are called Pharisees. Pretty, most people will agree this is probably who we're talking about here. They're not the only Jews involved. Jesus himself was Jewish. The man who was healed was Jewish. So to refer to this group as the Jews, he must have meant something more specific, probably the Pharisees. This group was a special order of Jewish piety. Kind of like in Catholicism today where you have different uh, monastic orders. Uh, In Jewish practice back then, you had different special orders that had their own rules that they were trying to follow to sort of bring in the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees were very devout, very devout. In fact, their theory was that if we, can, if we can reform our people so that they live in accordance with the law, if they do what's right, then that's what will encourage God to bring in the world he's promised us. That we are the trigger for it, so to speak, by how well we perform. Our faithfulness will be his inspiration to bring it in. And so they were scrupulous. I mean, they obeyed the law to the letter, and they policed it as best they could among their fellow Jews. They believed they had to purify the nation to prepare the way for God's Messiah. And the Sabbath was one of the main things that they focused on. Now, in the Old Testament, there's all these rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. 
And if you read those rules, if you, if you make it through the law books and all the different regulations, chances are what it's going to sound like to you is they have left no stone uncovered. I mean, these, there are rules here for absolutely everything. But it didn't seem that way to the, to the Jews, even before the Pharisees. There were all these extra layers that were built on top of what the Old Testament says, collected in holy books that were in addition to the Bible and that were used to help play out, sort of apply the rules that the Bible gives. So they had all of these really specific things that you could and couldn't carry on the Sabbath. What counted as work? You could carry someone on a map, for example, from one place to another, but you couldn't carry a map from one place to another. That would be to move something from one domain into another domain, which they defined as, as, as a violation of the, the call to rest. So when they see this guy carrying his mat, they are all over him. You're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. That's the point of their, of their question. What do you think you're doing? Carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Do you want to keep God's world, new world from coming in? Who told you it was all right for you to do that? Verse 16 says that once they've identified Jesus as the man, that's why they started persecuting him and ultimately killed him. started here because he told somebody to break one of their Sabbath regulations. Now, don't miss this. A man paralyzed for nearly 40 years has been healed on the spot and by a word. And what they notice is not the healing, but the violation of their Sabbath rules. God's redemption has shown up. The winter is breaking. The golden age they thought they were living for has dawned, and they miss it because they are more interested in what they are doing to try to create that new world than in the powerful grace that has broken in to do it for them. And I think what we're supposed to get from this model, the Pharisees and their reaction to what Jesus has done, the fact that they want to shut it down and ultimately shut him down, I think what we're supposed to get it get from this is, friends, the more you try to earn credit for your recovery, the more blind you'll be to the powerful grace of God when it actually shows up. The new world, as big as the defeat of death itself, as narrow as the removal of your pain and brokenness, is something only God can do. And to whatever extent you're focused on trying to deliver yourself from what threatens you, to that extent you will miss out on what God has come to do for you in Jesus. A second example is the man who was healed. I don't know if you noticed this, but he is hardly a lovable character here. You know, at first he's sympathetic. The guy's been an invalid for 38 years. He, he doesn't get to enjoy even the most basic things of society in the ancient world. He's sympathetic at first, but the story as it develops shows you that he himself is missing the point. There isn't a mention of his faith anywhere connected to Jesus' healing of him. And after he gets healed, you see how far from faith he actually is. When he's confronted by these Jewish leaders, by the, probably these Pharisees, 
All he does is shift the blame. He's the one who told me to do it. The man who healed me told me to do it. Go talk to him. Don't blame me. He doesn't even know who to tell him. Healed him. He didn't bother to get his name. Guy gets healed on the spot by a word, and he doesn't get the name of the guy who healed him. And then when Jesus actually does talk to him and he finds out who he is, what does he do? He runs straight back to the Pharisees to turn rat. I think this attitude in the man makes sense of Jesus' startling words to him. I don't know if these words surprised you. They certainly surprised me. When Jesus finds him in the temple and speaks to him, he says, See, you're well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse will happen to you. I think the first thing we ask here is, our first instinct is to wonder, does Jesus mean that all our suffering is our fault? That every affliction we have can be traced back to some sin we committed and God is just punishing us for it? I think we can, we can answer that immediately without getting sidetracked here. No, that is not what Jesus is saying. That's not true. In fact, he says just the opposite in a story later that we're going to come to in chapter 9. Uh, he heals a blind man right after someone had asked him, is the, guy, is the guy blind here because his parents sinned or because he sinned? They just assumed that he was guilty and that's why he, he was suffering the way that he was. And Jesus says, neither. Jesus doesn't give them a detailed reason for why the guy was blind. He just says, this is going to give me an opportunity to show you the power of God in this man's life. Suffering and disability don't stem from personal sin as a necessary cause and effect. But it does seem as if, in this case, there is a connection. That that can be what's, what's going on. What's clear here is that Jesus' primary concern for this man is not his physical disability, but what would happen to him if he continues to sin. The something worse that Jesus is referring to in this context is eternal judgment. It's a warning that this man faces a future that is far more horrific than the 38 years he spent without the ability to walk. He faces the death of his soul to all good and light and beauty. He faces the loss of the presence of God, which is life itself. Now, to make the most of this example, I think we have to notice a couple of things. I think we need to notice first, before we get into what the text is saying, what it's on the surface trying to point out to us about uh, a warning against, uh, against judgment, we need to notice how Jesus reasons with him. And when he calls this man to stop his sinful ways, calls him on the basis of what his mercy has already done for the man. He doesn't say, stop sinning so that I can heal you. This man doesn't have to pay for his healing with a renewed life. He says, you're well. My grace has come to you. I have liberated you from what had held you down. So now, in response to my mercy and grace, go and sin no more. Live as if I have made you new. And everywhere the Bible calls us to obedience, in light of Jesus, it calls us to to be who we already are by His grace. Not to earn God's favor, but to respond to it in a way that makes sense. The promise to us is that the grace God gives us is not just a freedom from what threatens us, but a freedom to be who we were made to be. 
that his grace isn't cheap. It isn't just, it's not just a handout that we take and enjoy and then move on with our lives. His grace actually transforms our lives and gives us new ability to live for him in a way that we couldn't before. It gives us the ability to be who we were supposed to be, to know the joy of living as full humans in the way that, that God made us to. So that's the first thing to notice. But here's the main thing to notice. There is no, there is no one who can enjoy the benefits of Christ's kingdom without repentance. There's no one who can enjoy the benefits of Christ's kingdom without repentance. Now, here's what I mean. We've talked about the big picture of what God has promised to do through Jesus. On the big picture, he's going to make everything new. That means no more disease, no more disability, no more death. And there's a way of focusing in on this big picture of what Jesus has come to do that can almost lull us into believing that it's just going to happen, that you enjoy the benefits of that kingdom when disease is pushed back, when poverty is brought low and eliminated, when, when, um, when life is extended because our medical care allows us to push back even on death itself, that in those in those things, we are enjoying the benefits of the kingdom. And what, what Jesus points out here is that, no, 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 this man can be healed and still not enjoy the kingdom. He can enjoy a foretaste of what Jesus came to do and still miss out if he doesn't repent. There is no place in the kingdom for willful rebellion against God. And when he saves us by his grace, he always changes us. One of my favorite treatments of this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's in um, The uh, Cost of Discipleship, or just Discipleship in some titles. It opens up with some of the most memorable language that, uh, on, on the nature of grace, on the true biblical nature of grace. And he compares cheap grace to costly grace. And this guy would know, okay? He lost his life opposing an imperial, idolatrous power by standing firm in his Christian faith. He talked about something that was prominent in his day that I think is definitely just as prominent in our day. It's something that you may have noticed in yourself even. If when you read this and heard Jesus say, go and sin no more, that didn't sound right to you, then you, then you might be tempted to the same sort of thing Bonhoeffer was responding to in his day in Germany 60, 80 years ago. What he called cheap grace. A grace that enjoys the sort of internal security of the idea that we'll, be, that we'll be saved by Jesus, that he's for us. But because grace is seen as something God does completely, uh, that, that therefore we're left free to kind of live as we were living already. You know? God does it all. He's going to do it all. I'm just going to move on with my life and enjoy that, the peace that comes from thinking Jesus will be for me when I die. So that his grace is more of an idea than a living, active presence in our life. I think that's what Jesus is calling out here. That this man has tasted something of grace, but it, it hasn't done anything to him. It hasn't changed him at all. He's got to go sin no more, or he's going he's to face something far worse than the inability to walk. This is what Bonhoeffer wanted to call out. Here's one, one of the things that he says in that book. He, just, he says, cheap grace means justification of sin, but not of the sinner. You know what that means? When we're, we're trying to help you identify whether this is something in your heart. You know, you've, got, you've locked onto a cheap grace and not the Christ-following, costly grace 
when you're more apt to justify sin that's still in your life than to, re- than to rejoice and rest in the fact that you as a sinner have been justified. Bonhoeffer continues, under this cheap grace, grace alone does everything, so everything can stay in its old ways. The world remains the world, and we remain sinners even in the best of lives. The Christian should live the same way the world does. This is him describing a cheap grace outlook. In all things, the Christian should go along with the world and not venture to live a different life under grace from that under sin. His conclusion is that cheap grace is grace we bestow on ourselves. This isn't the grace Jesus came to give. This is the grace we give to ourselves to make ourselves feel better. And it's not a grace that will save us from the eternal punishment that our sins deserve. Jesus wants to shake us up, not just to point us towards the comprehensive new world he's come to make, but to warn us against missing out on it because we're so comfortable resting in his promises of grace that we aren't actively trying to see his grace transform us so that we look different than we would if he hadn't saved us. His grace always makes new those that it comes to. Or as Bonhoeffer put it, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. It is the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all that he has. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. That's what Jesus' grace does to us. If, if on the one hand, we're so focused on what we can do to deliver ourselves... Or on the other hand, we're so focused on living the life we already wanted to live that we can't imagine or don't want to be changed by what Jesus promises us. If we fall into either of these ditches, we will miss out on the kingdom that Jesus came to to create for us. It is only through giving ourselves to the one who has come to make us new and allowing him, asking him to make all of us new, every part of our being, so that we are different people from what we were before. It is only when that kind of faith latches hold of his grace that we know we have a place in the world he's come to create. Friends, don't miss out on it. It's coming. The winter has broken, and it's offered to you now if you will give your life to him. Father, we desperately want to taste the sweetness of the kingdom you've promised us. So by your Spirit, create this faith in us and set us free from all that holds us back. We know, Father, we know that we are so tempted to just take the internal peace-giving thought that you are for us in Jesus and use it to blanket over the things we don't want to give up about our lives. Protect us by your Spirit from a desire to have everything we've always wanted and Jesus on top of it. But reorient us, we pray. Reorient us. So that we see this world and our place in it in light of what Jesus has come to do in us, the transformation that's promised to us. We want to live as citizens of His kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. Help us by Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.